0: Pages four to seven can be dismissed to junior church. There are some boards up front that kids can use to take notes during the sermon. And we'll invite Tom Skribin uh, to preach with us again in Revelation.
1: Thank you for those songs. All of them. The fight is on. I haven't sung that in quite a while. <laughs> and He Will Hold Me Fast. If you want a blessing, go to YouTube and look up Sing, the Sing Conference with the, the Keith and Kristen Getty. And uh, last year's Sing Conference, they, they, they sang He Will Hold Me Fast, and it was sung by a woman in Ukrainian And then a a woman sang it in Russian, and then Johnny Erickson Tata was there, and they sang it in English. He will hold me fast. And Keith and Kristen Getty, it's a a blessing. I've listened to it a number of times. Two more churches Jesus wrote letters to. And he wrote the letters because he promised. He promised his disciples, and John recorded it, that I will come again and receive unto myself, my own. Jesus is coming again. And that is a blessed hope in light of all the challenges, the trials, the sickness, the fires, the distress, the tornadoes, tornadoes down south that just killed, uh, I guess a couple dozen people died in a recent tornado down there. So we need to pray for that situation as well. But in light of his, his return, we continue to read the seven letters he wrote to his bride. And the reason that I titled this series, Intimate Letters to His Bride, is that that's exactly what they are. Jesus wrote personal letters to seven different churches, and he calls the church his bride, and he is the bridegroom. Ephesians chapter 5, he likens the marriage relationship the, and the analogy is the marriage relationship with his relationship with us, the church. He loves the church, and he gave himself for the church. And we as husbands need to love our wives, and the wives need to reverence and honor their husbands, just as the church needs to reverence and honor the head, Jesus Christ. But Christ gives instructions to those who are waiting for him. This, this sixth letter in particular I think is a real blessing. It's given to the church in Philadelphia and it makes really all, all of the Christian life worth living. This is a, this is a great letter. But imagine just, just a couple of days ago, it's the end of the week uh, at work, it's Friday, Your boss comes around to your desk, your cubicle, your workstation, your room, the job site, whatever it is, and he gives you an envelope, just like he's done every single Friday. And uh, as soon as you receive that and he leaves, the first thing you do is open it up. And yeah, you worked 40 hours, 45 hours, 50 hours, and there's your paycheck. Do you say, oh, thank heavens, I got a paycheck. Thank you, God. Thank you, boss. I got paid. It's sufficient. I'm not going to complain. I'm just thankful. Uh, no, you say, this is my my paycheck. I mean, I earned it. I worked. I worked Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, and I worked so many hours this week, and I got paid for it. But listen to the, definari- def- the definition in the dictionary of A reward, a reward is a benefit obtained as a result of an action taken or a job done. So technically, on Friday, when you get that paycheck, you got a reward for doing your work. But work and labor, uh, bringing reward and benefit, they've been a part of life ever since the beginning of time, ever since Adam and Eve. God said, I want you to flourish, I want you to multiply. They would eat vegetables, and they would have bread, but they had to work for it. By the sweat of your brow, you will bring forth these things, God told them. And that was because of the curse. Just think before the curse, they didn't sweat, (laughs) there was no uh, labor uh, that was uh, intense, there were no thorns, there were no briars, uh, but then they sinned. And who knows how, how long that period of time was, whether it was just a short period or a few weeks or a few years, we, we don't know. But after sin entered the picture, there was a curse. Uh, Hebrews eleven six says, For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, first of all, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. There is a reward for the believer. Well, there's a reward for the wicked also. Jesus wrote, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according to his work, what his work shall be. I am the Alpha, I am the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. The fiery evangelist Billy Sunday used to say, Hell! Is the highest reward that the devil can offer you for being a servant of his. That's the best he can do. Pastor Charles Stanley says if you tell God no because he won't explain the reason he wants you to do something, you are actually hindering his blessing on your life. But when you say yes to him, all of heaven opens to pour out his goodness and reward your obedience. What matters more than material blessings are the things he is teaching us in our spirit. Jesus has nothing but praise for this church, this church at Philadelphia, this church that is named the City of Brotherly Love. Apparently, there's, there's a reason that uh, it was called that. There were two brothers involved in, in uh, the leadership One of the brothers passed away, and so in honor of the other brother, he named this community, this city, Philadelphia. This church is a blessed group of believers, but the blessings were not automatic. The blessings are the result of two factors, and that is love and faithfulness. Love and faithfulness. One pastor commenting about the church in general Make some observations about a blessed and growing church. What is a blessed and growing church? And the church at Philadelphia was that. Well, he says, number one, a blessed and growing church has a persevering commitment to orthodoxy, truth. Jesus was was announced as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, but later John said in verse 14 of chapter 1, that we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. He was we we beheld the glory of God coming to this earth, and He was full of two two things. He was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. If there's any two words I would like on my tombstone when that comes, it would be grace and truth. Here was a man who who at least began to understand some of the grace of God, and he desired to walk in the truth. And Jesus was full of that. Why, why, why do they have to be lies? Why does the devil have to incite people to push false agendas so strongly? Why must truth be repressed and error often promoted Truth must be ignored and silenced. And I quote, because truth is painfully revealing concerning the wrongness of actions and the ultimate outcome of error. Truth takes the long look. Falsehood takes the short look. And often the results are staggering. Uh, Number two, what is it it about a blessed and growing church? A blessed and growing church has unswerving courage through times of suffering. Number three, a blessed and growing church, church, church maintains truth while ministering on the cutting edge of evil. Number four, a blessed and growing church has an increasing zeal for things eternal And number five, a blessed and growing church is one that has an ever-enlarging willingness to accept challenges that God brings to them. What does Jesus know about this church? What does Jesus say about this church? Well, in chapter 3 and verse 7, the angel or the messenger or the, the, the elder in Philadelphia write, the words... The words coming forth from the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. What does Jesus say, know about this church? Well, first of all, he does know about the church, and he says that to each of these congregations. He knows what's going on there. He knows our hearts. He knows our motives. He knows their works in particular. That includes the entire picture of what they're doing and why they're doing it, the reason that they're serving him. He knows their labor. And uh, I might just add that we've been going through these letters, but while these are actual letters to seven different congregations, they're also important messages for every age. Some commentators believe that, that the churches are in sort of a chronological uh, age uh, time factor. Like the church at Ephesus was during the first and second century, and then the next church was during a period of time, and the next church maybe during the Dark Ages, and the next church during the Reformation. And the church at Philadelphia was is a picture of The the age of grace, the church age, and then the last church is in the end times. And that could well be. But they were specific churches to, they were specific letters to specific churches. But they're obviously recorded for us to gain something from them. He knows their works, but he also knows their weaknesses. You have but little power. And he doesn't say that in a negative way. He knows that there are are, uh, attacks against the church, and he knows that they're struggling. And sometimes it seems like they're just holding on by a thread and maintaining their equilibrium. But he knows they have but little power, but they still have little power. And what did Jesus say about little things? Well, you can have faith as the grain of a tiny mustard seed, and yet say to this great mountain, be thou removed into the sea, and it will will happen. Now, that doesn't mean that we go out and try that, because he's speaking about our faith and trusting him, believing him, resting in him, abiding in him, and continuing him. And we might say, though, often alone, mistreated, aging, weary, less power, decreasing strength, and God knows all about that. That did not hinder the church at Philadelphia from the next two qualities that Jesus said he knows about. He knows their works, he knows their weakness, but he also knew about their faithfulness. The older I get, the more convinced I am that one of the secrets in the Christian life is just continuing to do what we're supposed to do. Pastor Don and his dear wife, 40 years in the same church. That's, uh, John MacArthur's been at his church for over 50 years, but look at the church and other churches in the Bethany Fellowship where pastors have come And they've dug in their heels, and they've just stayed and worn out uh, the attacks of the evil one. Something tremendous can be said for faithfulness. You have kept my word. Just keep the word of God in your heart. I will hide your word in my heart. Why? So that I might not sin against God. That's an anchor. Jesus also said that he knew about their devotion you have not denied my name you've been faithful so what does jesus know about this church these characteristics what does jesus say he will do for this church because of their their uh, works their knowing their weaknesses knowing their faithfulness knowing their do- their devotion jesus says he will do something for this church i have set before you an open door which no one is able to sh- shut. The church is going forward. This church has not just not just physical physical open doors, but they were they were open to pe- people. They were the, the the Lord had had given them opportunities for outreach. The apostle Paul used this same term, uh, speaking about. Uh, Staying in Ephesus in 1 Corinthians 16. I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, he said, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. So while there was an open door, he was going to take advantage of it. Open doors mean progress. The church at Philadelphia is going forward and nothing will stop that from happening. And Jesus said, I have set a door and it's wide open. Now, later on in the, the, the letter to Laodicea, we're going to see in a few minutes, there was a closed door. <laughs> in fact, <laughs> in fact, you see Jesus outside the door. They'd closed the door to the Savior, but that's in a few minutes. But this this was an open door. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Chuck Chuck Swindoll states, a church that has more memories than vision won't make the difference. Memories are good, but memories are in the past. And we want to go forward for Jesus Christ. Jesus promised that he would do some things for the church, and first of all, he would set an open door for them. Secondly, he promises that he will defeat and reverse the satanic plans against them. Look at verse 9. I've set before you an open door that no one would shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I I will do this for you. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not belie, and I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Jesus promises to defeat and actually reverse the plans that Satan has for this church. There there were Jews that said they were Jews, but they were deceived. And these deceived Jews will actually come before the faithful and honor them for being faithful. There are a lot of stories in the Bible like this. I, I love those stories. S- stories where God just reverses the plans of the wicked and pours them out on their own head. I was just, re- just remembering, again, the story of uh, Queen Esther and Mordecai and how the edict had been passed, that all the Jews in Shushan and the whole region of the Babylonian Empire on a certain day, a certain time, <coughs> excuse me, I have to cough too, that all the Jews were to be annihilated, to to be destroyed, and all of their goods were to be confiscated. And this was set in stone. The law of the Medes and Persians was irrevocable. And Mordecai, uh, a Jew, uh, a leader to some degree, put sackcloth and ashes on and mourned and and walked around the city weeping and crying out to God for mercy, seeing no way out. And if you could have come alongside Mordecai as he was seated there, perhaps uh, on, on the side of, side of the road with ashes in his hair and weeping and crying out to God and put your arm around Mordecai and say, Mordecai, dream your greatest dream. What would it be? And it got to the point where Haman, the wicked enemy of the Jews, had actually built a gallows uh, 75 feet high, and he planned to hang Mordecai on those gallows just to make things even worse for Mordecai. Well, my dream, my, my, mo, my most wild dream, my craziest dream would be that God would reverse all of this And instead of me hanging on the gallows, Haman would be hung on the gallows. Instead of all the Jews being destroyed, the Jews would defend themselves, and many would turn around and actually want to become Jews. You know what? That's exactly what happened. God, who's never mentioned in the book of Esther, in the background was working out the details to totally reverse the plans of the devil. Joseph, it happened to him too. The last time his brothers had seen Joseph, he was bound, maybe gagged, and he was being hauled away by Ishmaelites who had just bought him as a slave. Joseph had been thrown in a pit. I'm sure he was muddied and grungy and dirty and hot and sweaty. And as, as his brothers said, Good riddance. Hope we never see you again.
0: Twenty years
1: later, his brothers, now they're weary and destitute, and they come to Egypt and they bow before this royal monarch in total contrition, basically begging for their life that they could get food to take back to their families to continue to survive, never knowing that this royal monarch with this, this crown on his head seated on a throne in beautifully arrayed clothes was their long-lost brother, Joseph. You meant it for evil, Joseph said, but God meant it for good. I love those stories. It happened with David. It happened with Peter and many others. Listen to what the psalmist wrote, Psalm 7. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief, and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull, his violence. Again in Psalm 94, he will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. So take heart. When it seems like the world is against us, God is for us. God is for you. And Jesus makes this promise. What else will Jesus do for them? He will keep them from the time of trial to come. Verse 10, because, because you have kept my word, you've kept it in your heart, The word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon, Jesus said. He gives the promise of deliverance from the tribulation. He gives this promise to the church at Philadelphia that he will keep them from the time of tribulation, this time of wrath that is to come. And this is a significant point for those who believe that the church will not go through the tribulation, that they will be spared that seven years of horror on this earth. Uh, Revelation 3.10 and 11 speak of not only deliverance from future tribulation, but also the promise of Jesus' return and a completely new system of leadership. Note the wording in Revelation 3.10, because... Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from that hour of trial that is coming on the world, the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. A Greek scholar points out this, and I am not a Greek scholar, but the word from is ek. It's best understood as out of rather than simply from. What is said emphasizes, emphasizes deliverance from rather than through. It doesn't say that Jesus would keep them through the tribulation. He says he would keep them from the hour of tribulation. Something to think about. For this to be accomplished, Jesus will need to come and catch away his bride, as described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. After Another couple of thoughts is after Revelation 3.22, the church is never mentioned again. The view is in heaven. John's perspective of being in the presence of God, seeing what's going on on this earth. And Paul continues to encourage the church at Thessalonica regarding the coming of the Lord by saying, For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus continues to give hope and promise and coming position of reward to his church in Philadelphia. So what was the church's task? He promised these things. They did have something to do. First of all, the church's task was to hold fast what you have. Just hang on. And sometimes life seems like that's all we can do. But we can do that because of what they had. They had an open door, door, opportunities to present the gospel. They had little strength, but they had strength. They had a defender and vindicator, and they had enduring love. They were known as a church that loved. There, the, Jesus promised these enemies would come and bow down before you that they may learn that, that I love you, that I have loved you. This was a church on fire with love, but it's very difficult to love if you have not been loved, given love. And so this morning, if you don't remember anything else that I say, church, you are loved. We are loved tremendously by our Heavenly Father. We are loved. What they had was an open door, they had a little strength, they had a defender, but he also promised, he also told them their task was to overcome, to the one who conquers. Some people have the idea, well, just as long as I get inside them pearly gates, that's good enough for me, and that will be tremendous. But Jesus expects us to conquer. He has provided for us the tools to conquer the Holy Spirit, his word, other believers, encouraging us in the faith. And this aspect must be very important as Jesus spoke of conquering to the other churches, the church at Ephesus and and Pergamum and Smyrna. And it means to seize or to master or to defeat in battle or to win over. When Jesus comes back at the second coming, He comes with the armies in heaven, clothed in white linen, riding on white horses. I love it, the idea, riding on white horses. And he comes as victor, as defender, as conquering king of kings and lord of lords. And we will be with him. And the Lord promises these things. And to this church, he promises compensation that no one will seize your crown. No one will be able to take your crown. Now we know we can't lose our salvation, but crowns are given to those who overcome. Paul talked about a victor's crown. There are numerous crowns, a martyr's crown, a Stephanus crown, but a mark of royal exalted rank, the eternal blessedness which which will be given as a prize to the genuine servants of God. That's the significance of crowns. And he promises that I will make them a pillar in the temple of my God. Not just a visitor or a sightseer in the place of God's dwelling, but a supporting mainstay in the very holy place of God's presence, a pillar. He promises that they would never lose this position or be asked to leave a place of refuge, a place of belonging. I am a part of God's, I will become a part of God's temple forever. Can you think of any place that would top that? And then lastly, he gives three connecting names that will be be given. I wish we could spend more time on this because this is so rich. He says that I am going to give them God's name as identification and family relationship. In the Bible, we have James, the son of John, or, or uh, uh, John, the son of Zebedee, or David, the city of David, the son of David. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God. So we'll be given God's name. We'll be given the name of God's city like Saul of Tarsus, of Joseph of Arimathea, or Jesus of Nazareth. And then we'll be given Jesus' new name, it says. Someone commented, At the moment we see Christ, whatever we may have been, what, whatever we may have called him and understood by that name will pale in the reality of what we see, and he will give us uh, a new eternal name by which we will we will know him by a, a new name, a new name. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. The church at Philadelphia. I hope when Jesus comes, we can be that kind of church. But we end with the church at Laodicea. The church of the indifferent and deceived. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. You know, who who is speaking in a given situation is just as important as what they say. The words that were spoken on November 19th, 1863, continue to ring true as one senator remarked. The world noted at once what he said and will never cease to remember these words. Four score, and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And our president, Lincoln, stated those words, which made them so significant. And Jesus gives some final words to this final church. The recipients, those who are addressed here, are what is functionally called a church at Laodicea. This was an ancient town originally originally named Diospolis, the city of Zeus. The Roman emperor Antiochus II renamed it after his wife Laodicea. It was between the cities of Colossae and Ephesus. It was under Roman rule and as the Romans ruled it, it became very, very rich and wealthy, a prosperous city. The culture. What was going on in Laodicea at the time was very reflective of what Jesus had to say about the church in that city. It produced and exported seamless garments woven in glossy black. That's significant as we read what he talks about Regarding this church, the deities worshipped included one associated with a famous medical school connected to a temple. Phrygian powder, ground locally, was used to treat the diseases of the eye. The author, who is addressing them, he says, I am the Amen, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God. Now, up north, we're too refined <laughs> <and> <laughs> to, to often shout out during a service. But if you were to go to a, a, a southern Baptist church, uh, it would be much different. I remember going to a conference, uh, evangelistic conference uh, in Georgia. We lived in Chattanooga, Tennessee for a short period of time. And I went several evenings to these evangelistic meetings. An evangelist from uh, North Carolina was preaching. And he was, first of all, all over the stage. Uh, you weren't sure at times who was, the, who was the, the speaker because somebody in the back was standing up and they were trying to shout, amen, or whatever, you know, praise God, thank God, and it was a crazy time. <laughs> it, was, it was life. I'll tell you, there were 51 preachers there. And I'll bet half of them had something to say during the message as the pastor was preaching. Uh, but a- a- amen is an agreement phrase. So be it. It's often stated at the, we use it at the end of a prayer. In Jesus' name, Amen. That's the conclusion. And it was a custom, even in the synagogues, which passed on to the Christian assemblies, that after somebody read, there would be a, a, not only a, an agreement, but a conclusion to what they read. Amen. So be it. Here, Jesus says, I am. The, the, word, the word is articulated. I am the amen. I am the amen. Uh, reliable one, so be it. Amen. Conclusion. I am faithful. I am worthy of trust. I am the true witness, that which has not only the name, but the resemblance and the character of being real and true. I am the witness, the one who testifies to these things. He knows what's going on there. How much truth do we hear coming from our culture today? I think we saw that very evident during the pandemic because on a Tuesday afternoon we would hear one thing and then Wednesday morning there was something, some advice given that was totally different. So what, what are you supposed to believe, you know? And we see that sadly in our news all the day, all the time. But then he says, I'm the beginning of the creation of God. The creation of God, that by which anything begins to be, the origin, the cause, referring to the beginner and the author of all things. Why did he say that? Well, because in this time at this church, there was heresy being taught that Jesus Christ was a created being. And we know that's not true. He's actually, actually, the creator being of all things. So we see, uh, we see the author. We see now the content. What is the heart of the matter? Jesus knows. I know your works. There again, knows what's going on. He again claims full knowledge of all that is happening in the midst of the church of Laodicea, and. Let me just say right up front, as we know, that he has no positive comments for this church, unfortunately. Instead, he exposes, I know your works. You are not cold and you are not hot. Well, that's good. You know, I don't like to be cold and I don't like to be too hot. I just like somewhere in between. Well, not spiritually. He doesn't like that. And Jesus is a master storyteller, illustrator, and conveyor of powerful messages that grip people's hearts. He gives here a startling word picture, one that is, frankly, repulsive, isn't it? A picture of somebody being sick. If anyone but the Lord had said this, it wouldn't have had as much impact but imagine the church receiving a letter from the Lord and it says, you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Wow, really? The Lord said that? They weren't frigid? They weren't sizzling, they were somewhere in between that. He wanted either cold or hot. Lukewarm is repulsive. My mother, bless her heart, is in heaven, but we would go out to eat or we would go to a restaurant and she would the wait waitress would come and take our drinks. And we would get something and she would say, I would like some really, really, really hot tea. She hated coffee, never drank coffee in her life. But she, she wanted really, really hot tea. Nothing in between. She didn't want lukewarm. This word is only used one time in this passage by one person. It means the condition of the soul wretchedly fluctuating between... Lethargy and fervent love. John MacArthur comments, cold is openly rejecting Christ, hot is filled with spiritual zeal. Instead, this church's members were lukewarm hypocrites, professing to know Christ, but not truly belonging to him, somewhere in the spiritual in-between zone. So because, Jesus says, you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Some translations say spew. And it's interesting to note, and I quote, the city of Colossae to the east had cold, refreshing mountain streams, and Hier- Hierapolis to the north was famous for its hot springs, but Laodicea had dirty, tepid, lukewarm water that flowed for miles through an underground aqueduct. Visitors, unaccustomed to this, would come into the city and want a refreshing drink of water and get water in their container and take a sip of it and literally spit it out of their mouths because it was so disgusting." And Jesus said, just like the tepid, dirty water of Laodicea, these self-deceived hypocrites sicken Christ. John R. Stott comments, the Laodicean church was a half-hearted church. Perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate than the 20th, he said, the 20th century, 21st century than this it describes vividly the recept- respectable sentimental sentimental nominal skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today stott says our christianity is flabby and anemic we appear to have taken a lukewarm bath in religion matthew henry says if religion is worth anything it is worth Everything. The church in Ephesus, they had lost their first love. But the church at Laodicea didn't love him, didn't hate him. It was a church of the whatever. And Jesus explains they were conceited. They said they were rich and increased with goods, but they were deceived. To be deceived is not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And and Jesus is going, going to address each of those. There is an answer for that. Pride is a vicious enemy of the Christian. It's a continual tool used by the devil throughout all time. Pride keeps people out of heaven and Christians out of service. So Jesus gives them counsel. He says, I counsel you in regards to your spiritual poverty to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you might be rich. John Walford says, in describing the Laodiceans as poor, Christ indicates that they are extremely poor, that they are reduced to begging. Their money would not buy what they really needed. Jesus is talking about real riches. Him himself, and his word. But would they listen to his counsel? You know, counsel can be rejected. People can listen to it or they can reject, reject it. Refined gold will bring true riches. Salvation is paid for. Forgiveness of sins is taken care of. In fact, it's totally free. And if you do not understand that, you can know the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ this morning. Believe in him, receive him, confess that you need him, accept him as Lord, submit and humble yourself, and Jesus will save you. So he gives counsel, he gives counsel for spiritual shame. He, he says you can have white garments, you can close your, yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And you remember Laodicea was known for its finely woven black garments, black wool garments. Jesus will give them white garments covered in the righteousness of Christ. And he gives counsel about spiritual blindness that he will, he will anoint their eyes with eye salves so that they can see. Jesus opens blind eyes. Remember the the young man in John chapter 9, the Pharisees got a hold of him after his sight was given to him, and they said, Tell us, tell us, we know this man is a sinner. And what did the man say? "Whether Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But what I do know, I was blind and now I see. That's what I do know. And Christ opens blind eyes. And the Laodiceans, the Laodiceans needed more than just their, their medical eye salve to help their eyesight. No, they, they needed, they needed new, new sight. They needed to see the Savior, the remedy for blindness. There's no words here about remember or repent because, frankly speaking, they probably didn't even know the Lord. There was nothing to remember. There was nothing to repent to. Jesus offers to touch blind eyes so that they can see him. The light of the glorious gospel is Jesus Christ. And Jesus stands outside of this church door, knocking, wanting to come in, willing to come in. It's heartbreaking that they had done this. They needed true salvation. They need to open, open their hearts and let Him come in. And it's tender that even in their ignorance and their deception and their uh, conformity to the world, he still loved them. He still, still tenderly waited for them. He knocked on the door of this church's heart to hear his voice and open the door. And he would come into them and would sup with them and have a meal together with them. And Jesus conquered, offering what he has done and where he will be to them. We can be conquerors. We can be seated with him on this throne that he talks about. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Someday Jesus will say, Come, church, and feast at my table forever. Are we looking and waiting and listening for that? Someone put these words to, to music. "Soon the lamb will take his bride to be ever at his side. All the host of heaven will assembled be. Oh, twill be a glorious sight. All the saints in spotless white, and with Jesus we will feast eternally. The chorus goes like this: "Come and dine, the master calleth. Come and dine. You may feast at Jesus' table all the time. He who fed the multitude, Turn the water into wine, to the hungry calleth now, come and dine. Jesus states his reasons for giving this advice. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. He loves us. He doesn't want us spiritually poor. He loves us. He doesn't want us to be clothed in shame. He loves us. He doesn't want us stumbling around in spiritual blindness. So we look to the shepherd. Thank you, Jesus, for these letters of instruction and encouragement and your love letters to us, your people, your church. Amen.
0: You can go ahead and turn your hymnals to 194, Jesus is coming again. 194. Marvelous message we bring. Glorious carol we sing. Wonderful word of God. coming again coming again coming again maybe morning maybe noon maybe evening and maybe soon coming is coming again, forest and flower exclaim, mountain and meadow the same, all earth and heaven proclaim, Jesus is coming again. No. Uh-huh. are dismissed.